Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast by Balai Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic worlds of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of film culture and speak with experts, leaders, artists, and creators who are pushing and shaping the boundaries of their respective fields. Follow us on all social media at Balai Creative or cultural.cultivators. Cultivators with a K. I belong with you. Tell me, they do you. Rita is a singer-songwriter from San Francisco's Portola District. She started at the age of nine, absorbing a diverse array of musical influences she later blend into her distinct style that combines elements from neo-soul, alternative R&B, and pop through the lens of mixed cultural experiences that shaped her. Rita's songs have been featured on MTV, KQED, and have received international radio play in the UK, Ireland, and Sweden. Her five-track debut EP released just last year in October. Come Rain, Come Shine is a testament to her Bay Area and familial roots, vulnerable and candid lyricism. She was just recently signed onto Ruby Abaro's Bolo Music Group label and was a 2022 Balai Creative Growth Artist grantee. In our conversation, she explores the current social media discourse about Filipino authenticity. There's been more discourse around what it means to be Filipino-American lately in conversation with folks. It's painful to see because there's a lot more arguing and bickering and othering happening. I think that's something that you'll see happen in diasporic communities as well because like, how Filipino do you feel? Like, who has the say and the authority for what it means to be authentically Filipino? And I think we naturally will want to look to the Philippines, but I think it's important to remember how your experiences as both a Filipino but an American, truly not just a Filipino in America, but being Filipino and American, is so important to how we think about our life stories and how we want to represent that in art and the culture that we've created here. It has its roots, but it is also its own thing and that's okay. It doesn't have to match up to some preconceived notion of authenticity. Also in the conversation, we talk about growing up biracial to a creative family in San Francisco. Her musical journey leading to the Bolo Music Group and the power of having autonomy over your art. You can find Wida on Instagram at sfduchess and visit her website at wedamusic.com. Wida spelled O-U-I-D-A. Welcome to the studio, Wida. I feel like we only had a handful of guests come to Balai. 
I felt this full circle moment because I think this time last year we were either prepping for or rehearsing for the KQED show. That's right. In the mission. Yeah. Yeah. And we had this beautiful moment on stage where it was like my proud mama bear moment of seeing like all the female <laughs> performance artists, belied creative grantees mm -hmm. on stage with Ruby Ibarra. And then to see how you've grown and flourished within just one year, it like blows my mind. Mm. I mean, you're a big part of making all that happen, both the KQD event, which was such a amazing opportunity for me and, and for all of us, but even just being a part of that cohort for Bly Creative's growth grantees. During this time last year, I was also prepping for the show. Yeah, I feel like a lot's happened in that time. Like it feels so much longer than just last year. Yeah, it feels like three or at least two years ago. <laughs> Hell along. <laughs> a really like long time months. ago. A lot has happened. Before we get into what has happened between mm. then and now, I always ask this first question of all my guests to ground us in the space in the conversation. And my question is, which ancestor or person who has transitioned would you like to call into the conversation and space today? Yeah, I, I think I'd like to call my grandmother, my grandma Gloria, into the conversation. Uh, she passed away almost a year ago, but she was one of my greatest inspirations, and we were very close when I was growing up, and she was a performer, an entertainer, and really just her name, Gloria. Like She had so much joy, and I've been trying to be more intentional about just channeling that sense of joy into conversation and whatever I'm doing, so... Yeah. I love that. I actually had a coaching session with Anthem. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Anthem typically coaches our Belay creative artists and mm -hmm. grantees every year. Now he's my personal leadership coach. I'm jealous. <laughs> he's amazing. <laughs> Plug to Anthem Salgado. I had this session with Anthem just a couple of days ago, and we were talking about 2024. One of the things I'm highly intentional about for mm -hmm. the next year is joyful evolution. Mm. So when you said your grandma reminds me of the joy that she brought and how you are also doing that in your music, I think it just is in alignment with a lot of people and artists right now because the world is so heavy. Yeah, and I think there's also this misconception, and I had this misconception of my grandmother for most of my life, that being joyful was just a natural attribute of hers that just came easily and it wasn't until I was older and could ask questions about her life more intentionally because I was looking for guidance for my own that I realized things have not always been easy like they're not for anyone and that being joyful is really a choice and I try and remind myself of that because I don't feel like being joyful is just an easy thing for me like that doesn't feel like my baseline default it's something I know I have to work at and so I totally resonate with wanting to be that way more as a choice. Yeah. And being more mindful. Mm. Yeah. Because there is so much to be joyful about. And to be more intentional about bringing in things that bring you joy. Mm. Right. And yes. to your life. Yes. That 100%. part. Feel that. Uh-huh. You talked about how your grandma helped with the origin story of your music career, but can you go into detail just about that origin story and how it started? Yeah, I think the arts 
as like a blanket field has always been where my heart lies. And a lot of that is because of my grandmother, her sister. They both grew up in San Francisco and would tell me these stories about dancing in San Francisco ballet or their mother sang for the San Francisco opera. I mean, we were all very working class artists. So there was really a centered appreciation of the arts for what it gives you in terms of fulfillment and not necessarily as a means for your livelihood. Although we all want that, mm -hmm. right? That's not the point. I guess it can be, but the joy needs to be there. And so seeing how much my grandmother and my granddaunt loved to perform, even until they passed away, my grandmother used to be called Cabaret Kitty, well into her 70s, still performing in full costume. I'd bring my grandmother to my school for Bring Your Grandparents to School Day. And it wasn't until I looked around and saw all the old ladies with the silver bobs and the sensible shoes, and then looked at my grandma in her high heel boots with her giant red hair, her acrylics, <laughs> that I realized my grandma's not an ordinary grandma. So that was definitely one of the inspirations for me to follow in their footsteps. I wanted to be like them. And I think my dad, so my grandmother's son, really passed that love of singing and performance to me. He was a painter as well. So I think we had a very deep relationship from my start because we could connect on this concept of making sense of your life and making sense of your world through art, whatever that looks like, and that there were no boundaries and no rules for that. And that was a very freeing concept at an early age. And I'd say that's where it starts. I want to talk more about that origin story. I think about that for my son because mm -hmm. his grandma, my mom, mm -hmm. was a samba dancer. Oh, wow. And so like not the traditional grandma, you know, she still will be like, I'm going to put my samba costume on and <laughs> dance around. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think about that and also the legacy mm. that you're continuing on with your dad being an artist and your grandma being an artist, your great aunt being an artist. How does that feel? I think it's made me feel connected to my family more than anything. There's a real sense of identification with being an artist because of that. And so I think I was really lucky in that sense because I never questioned at a young age that this was something I was meant to do. That came later on, the questioning part. <laughs> but those initial beliefs of you belong in a space where you can create didn't seem like something to question at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so freeing. Yeah. Being able to feel connected to the generations uh, ahead of you is something that's very special. And I don't think I realized how much I appreciate that until I got older. I didn't quite have that as much on my mom's family as she immigrated to the States. I heard stories about her parents, but never really met them. And they had passed away when I was really young or before I was born. But on my mom's side, similarly, an appreciation for the arts. I mean, of course, as well, right? <laughs> like all my brothers can, not all of them, but a few of my brothers can break dance. Oh, wow. Okay. They don't want to admit it, but they can sing. <laughs> We're all forced to sing, but my mom's dad, he was a struggling writer and he directed films himself. And the way my mother's mother met her father was she was an actress. Oh, wow. But this was kept from me until I was a little bit older because I think 
some of their struggle was passed down to my mom and, and the way that she saw being a starving artist. Mm-hmm. Her heart was in the arts, but she wanted something stable for me. That's a lot of Filipino families, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even my own background, both of my parents are artists. My mom was a dancer and my dad's mm-hmm. a musician, but they still had that struggling artist conditioning mm-hmm. that came from their parents, which is ironic because my grandpa, my mom's dad was a drummer, a big wow. band drummer. And my grandma was an organist. So, Aww. yeah. Church? So, yes. Uh-huh. All the churches in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> Been there. From your father being an artist and your grandma, what was the one piece of advice as artists that they gave you that really helped shape you as an artist that you are today? Hmm. So many pieces of advice come to mind. One that's standing out now is my dad, he could be very critical of his own work just like I could be. And I remember him telling me that an artist's work is never done. And by saying that it was knowing that you can keep working on something until you beat it dead. Like there's no end for it for you. So you kind of have to decide where that end is and let the critics be the critics and let the artist be the artist. There's absolutely no point creating in anticipation of the critique it might receive from outside of yourself in this room where you're creating it. So I think those were pieces of advice in finishing work, (laughs) letting it have its own life and not being the biggest critic of your own work. Yeah. And letting it just be out there into the world. Yeah. So good. And your grandma? Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to that joyful. (laughs) She's the fun girl. Yes. Everything I've learned about her growing up just further supports this fact that she prioritized fun. It's awesome. (laughs) I think that's so important to have in a grandparent, to have that one grandparent to be like, just have fun. Don't worry about other people's expectations of you. Yeah. Because I think especially... Being Asian-American, you have so much expectation on you Mm. from family. Yeah. So to have that one person in your family to be like, just have fun. Yeah. F it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think she was a bit of a black sheep, too, in her family. So we could see eye to eye on a couple things. Yeah. (laughs) Right on, Grandma. (laughs) How would you describe your own sound or genre of music? Yeah, I would say that my music exists at an intersection of R&B or alternative R&B, neo-soul or soul, and pop. I wish there was a more straightforward genre and bucket that I could place that in, but I think it's really just a culmination of the influences musically in my life and also just organically where I think the content wants to lie. As far as sound goes, I mean, I grew up listening to so many different genres of music. My dad was huge into classic rock and listened to everything from Jimmy Page to Creed to the Beatles. But then they also loved playing jazz. They played Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and other classics like Frank Sinatra. God, I keep going. But I think growing up in the Bay Area, there's absolutely no getting away from hip hop and R&B. And so even though... At an early age, I was listening to Janis Joplin. My sister was playing Tupac in the bedroom, you know, and so there was very much a mix of all these influences and finding my voice 
when it really came time to wanting to develop my own sound outside of songwriting, but like really get sonically focused, like what feels good, what resonates and what sounds good. Cause that's a big part of it too, right? Like I'd love to sound like Whitney Houston, but that's not gonna happen. It naturally started expressing as a jazzier, soulful sound that was really rooted in my chest and my stomach. And a lot of the songwriting, I think, is so pop-influenced. There's really that structure in how I write songs based on me listening to, like, Avril Lavigne and, like, Michelle Branch, Let's Keep It Real, and Blink-182, and The Beatles. Just bringing all of it together. What is that process like with songwriting? It's so different all the time. I wish I had one method, but I'd say the most important piece is being inspired, right? Like really feeling something. I think when I started songwriting, it really was not intentional. I didn't know I was doing it. And it wasn't until I was already doing it for a little while that I realized I was songwriting and that there are people out there that do this maybe for a living, but I don't know them. And so I think having questions you want to explore and having a real charge for wanting to navigate these questions is what gets you into the place of finding the tone, finding the beginning questions, your beginning lyrics, the ponderings, and then the rest just falls into place for me. I usually will play piano because that's the instrument that I'm most comfortable writing on. But I remember as a kid, I picked up a guitar in high school because when it was time for me to go to sleep and I didn't want to sleep, I needed to write on something that no one could catch me on in my room. So not a good guitarist. You will probably never see me play at a show. But I think finding whatever tool you can that allows you to get your ideas out and be in flow is the best thing to do. And at what age did you start writing your own songs? I started songwriting when I was nine. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. My first song was called Heartbreak. Oh, at nine? Yeah. What heartbreak did you go through? At I nine don't think years it. Old? Listen, I didn't think it was ridiculous back then. I do now, but I remember how heartbroken I felt. I liked this boy. His name was Andrew. Uh, Andrew, if you're watching this, <laughs> don't get too cocky. <laughs> Wasn't like that. <laughs> but he liked my best friend, and it was such a horrible, horrible triangle in my mind that no one else was probably aware of except for me. And we'd be playing like softball or like, I think it was sock ball, you know, when you like hit it with your, yeah. <laughs> what? And I'd be out there in midfield singing the song in my head. Heartbreak, <laughs> bad enough. Oh, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it started early and it was just like a place to say whatever was going on that no one else took seriously. Like puppy love is real to a puppy. Yes. And so I think having something for yourself where you can be completely vulnerable and not be made fun of, not feel like it's not allowed or whatever the case may be, I think is part of survival. And that's why art to me is a form of survival. Mm. Did you ever play that song for him? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, not for him. (laughs) I mean, coming from a Filipino family, I was very out there with my music when I was young. Like I was playing at showcases. Sometimes I just tell my teacher, I wrote a song. I want to play it for the class. And then I'd get my girlfriends to come sing it with me. It wasn't until I was in high school that I realized that people don't always like someone showcasing (laughs) 
without invitation. That was very kid of me. But yeah, people heard all the songs I wrote when I was in grade school and middle school. I think that's also very Filipino, though, because at any kind of Filipino party, holiday party, they're like, which kid can come and entertain us all with either their dancing or their singing or, you know. Yeah. Come here, boy, boy. Sing for the family. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. I remember getting thrown in front of family gatherings and having to do like the whole Spice Girl routine from the movie. Being like, I haven't rehearsed (laughs) and like feeling so on the spot. But I went to a Catholic school, lots of Filipinos, and we were all down to just sing at recess. Everyone was just harmonizing. It was more of an R&B world Mm -hmm. back then. I think it still is, too. But yeah, yeah, so that's been there. That's been there. (laughs) Who was your favorite R&B group to emulate or copy? Oh, my God. I'm thinking, I don't know if this is embarrassing, but like... I remember when JoJo came out with the version of Beautiful Girl, you're way too beautiful. Yes. And I could mimic her, and I was so proud of myself. <laughs> I was going around doing these runs because that is just not my forte. Like, I don't sing like that. Like, when I got into high school my freshman year, I was, like, singing all the time. And <laughs> just, like, look at me. <laughs> we had to get the video of that. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, looking back at your artistic breakthroughs and moments Mm. of realizations, what significant impact have those moments been on your journey and how have they shaped you as an artist? All of the really poignant, shifting catalyst moments in my life were both creative and personal. And I think that's a kind of natural response that as I changed as an individual getting into womanhood, that my relationship to my art or my relationship with music as both craft and career would change. And there's a few instances that really come to mind. When I was 19, I had dropped out of NYU because I couldn't afford it. I was going to the art school of my dreams. Don't regret that I went there and took the loans out for the little amount of time I did, but it was really hard leaving and almost like admitting a sort of failure and it's only now in retrospect that I'm like that's not failure but at the time all I really had as a young person was my associations with institutions with vetable organizations that could say hey you're worth something and prior to getting into NYU I really didn't have the self-confidence that I could make a career out of music I didn't know anyone that was doing that. So it was very much trailblazing for me without guidance and having parents that really expected me to take advantage of the opportunity of being in America and going to schools that are prepping you for university. And, you know, coming from a working class family, like they don't want to see you struggle. Like they are setting you up so that you could financially take care of yourself. So going to an art school and then dropping out with debt was like not the move in their eyes. But I think my parents also just wanted to really protect me from the amount of debt that private universities can put you in. And just to give you a taste of that, that program was like 63,000 a year. And let's just say like, I don't know if everyone that left that program is really in a career doing music. Not that you absolutely have to, but it's not necessarily the easiest straightforward career to really make the money 
that you would need to pay that back feeling comfortably. Right. And so I understand all of that. But I think coming back to San Francisco and enrolling at City College and trying to just figure out like what's next and like how do I make these dreams a reality was very challenging for me because I was having to redefine who I was and what my worth was when it wasn't attached to these external pieces that gave me validation of some imagined success going to whatever school, like who cares, right? But when I got back, I had met a music manager and I thought, oh, this is going to be an opportunity for me to make roots here in San Francisco. And she had a great track record herself. I would start saying who she's worked with, but then she might know I'm talking about her. (laughs) She probably will anyway, and that's okay. (laughs) Because that experience was so traumatic for me. Oh, wow. I was 19 very impressionable, you know, couldn't pay a lawyer to look at contracts. And so I ended up getting myself into a fairly long management contract and a publishing deal with an investor that she had chosen. What I didn't realize was that she had also gone behind my back and made a deal with the publisher to have a percentage of my publishing for setting up the deal in the first place. And so after all was said and done, and I didn't want to wear a top hat and dance around in high heels like she wanted me to. And I wanted to maintain some artistic integrity for my vision. She actually took my songs and shopped them around to other singers. And let me tell you, I had no systemized way of approaching my craft at the time. Like when I write something, it's because I'm inspired and there's mental space and emotional space to explore. So when this happened, I didn't write another song for I don't know how long. Like it was so devastating to me that the possibility of pursuing music, anything I write, being owned by anyone else, being controlled by someone else was really discouraging to say the least. And so I, for a few years after that, no response from my manager, couldn't get her to email me back. I had met with some folks at Sony who hooked me up with a manager and a lawyer to help get in contact with the people I was still in contract with. No response. And so it really fizzled out. I was watching opportunities pass me by and thinking, well, what's the point? It wasn't until I had transferred to Berkeley and I was like focused on sociology. I'd basically completely shifted gears. I was like, wow, now I'm aware of my socioeconomic place in the world that, hey, working hard does not always equate to getting what you deserve, right? That I was coming to terms with how the world works in a way and trying to just not be bitter about it because that was the hardest part was being bitter about my art being stolen from me. It wasn't until then that I looked at my position in the world and in this story that I was living that I really needed to connect with my why for for why I do this. Like, why do I keep wanting to go back to music? Why is this something I can't like live without? And it's because it's just a natural part of my processing. It's just who I am. And you can't escape that. You may take breaks from it and focus on other things, which I think is something you should absolutely do, like live your life. And that's what I did. I lived my life. I went to school. I worked in a restaurant, worked in bars, occasionally wrote something for myself. 
but I didn't have the intention of really doing anything with it until later on when I realized this is something I can't live without and this isn't something I'm going to let anyone ever take my joy from again. Yes. Oh, I felt that in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. It was so real and so vulnerable and so freaking like important, I think, for artists to know when sometimes things seem so shiny and too good. They are. Yeah. <laughs> and I think with young artists, I was that way too. I started to work with someone who didn't have the best intentions and wanted to steal my ideas. Yeah. But because they were saying all the right words. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, and I had met them through another artist that I had trusted at the time. Same. That <laughs> I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll sign anything. Come to find out she is not about her word. <laughs> and she was trying to steal my idea and take credit for it. And I was devastated. She tried to sue me. I, mean, I didn't have lawyers to like help until my cousin stepped in and she helped me with the situation. Wow. And we got out of it. But it took me years to get over that trauma. It is traumatic. And I think another piece of that is how we can blame ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. You almost lose trust in your ability to see a danger yes. or see a threat mm -hmm. or just protect yourself. I felt pretty stupid <laughs> after that. But by the same token, I've talked to other agencies or management groups or labels, and I can just see that shit from a mile away mm. now. I used to fall for that. Yeah. But I sometimes think it takes falling for it. And like, luckily, early on, yeah. like, that's how I feel now. I'm like, I'm glad I was 19 yeah. and that happened rather than now when like, I'm really ready to be going for it. Mm -hmm. Same. Yeah, right? Same. <laughs> I was like, that That taught me a lot about the industry, mm. the people in the industry that are like, quote unquote, successful. <laughs> yeah. And also like, what is my truest intention? And I think it came to the point in the last four or five years where I was like, I'm okay not being a corporate artist. Mm -hmm. I'm okay being a strictly community artist that is wanting to create art for the community mm -hmm. and not being on Netflix or, you mm. know, if that comes then it comes, but it has to be on my terms. Yeah. Right. And I think Prince had this quote, if you don't own your publishing, then other people will own you. Yeah. I think about that even as a writer uh -huh. and a filmmaker yeah. Like, be very careful on who you sell your things to. Yeah. Including the big corporations. <laughs> yeah, it's a big game. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, in entertainment, such a profitable, yep. gigantic industry that the amount of hands that need to go into something for it to be, quote unquote, successful. I get it. I get why that there are these kind of systems in place for people to be compensated. But I don't think we should ever forget the integrity that an artist brings to the table and how they need to really be taken care of in that process. It's interesting with labels and all of that stuff. Some of the deals I've seen, I'm just like, in what planet does this serve me or my children in the future? Maybe I'm just thinking too big. I don't know, but yeah. I'm like, bitch, 20 years. Yeah. Mm, I don't know where I'm going to be at in 20 years. Exactly. <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> I think about that too. I think about my son yeah, and his kids and the future generations. 
what you don't want to do is sell your idea and then it's not yours anymore. Mm. And it becomes washed out <laughs> to something you can't even recognize. Yeah. And so I think that's super important. I'm so happy we talked about this. But I think when that happens, when those experiences happen, it's one, a sign from the universe that there are certain boundaries that we get to put in place mm. with our art and our heart. Yes. Right? Because our art is a reflection of what's in here. Mm-hmm. And you really have to think about, okay, these labels, these studios, and it's really profit over people. And they oftentimes, even the, like the agents and stuff that mm-hmm. work under them, <laughs> they don't remember that. And so as artists, we get to have a very clear stance of we are people mm. and we're creating art for the people. Yeah. Art as a form of survival is partially the survival of your stories. Mm. And I think there's this manufacturing of music and manufacturing of art nowadays that's based on profits. It's like algorithmically what's going to sell, what's going to work, what have people liked so far Can we make this trending? Do you have the look for what we're looking for now? We'll write stuff for you. And not to say that there shouldn't be entertainers. Yes, entertain me, but also let artists be artists. Mm. Let them tell their stories that reflect the current conditions of their world, of their thoughts, and stop manufacturing something that's divorced from that because I think it harms society more. Because we're not really talking about what people are going through. We're creating things that do well on TikTok. And having tried to go down that route of being a songwriter behind the scenes and writing with labels or publishing companies, going through their catalogs, recording something differently. So it's like a new version of a song that's already out that they know has been successful. Mm -hmm. I find that the songwriting process there has been soul sucking. I thought it would be fun. And I'm sure it is for a lot of people, but I think that particular experience for me when I first started trying to songwrite in LA was like, okay, so you destroyed my chorus and had me repeat the same line eight times. I am going to forget this garbage in a year, but it's highly produced garbage. Like it sounds great. My friends actually keep asking me to play it. But like, I'm never going to really remember this song. And so I think weighing out, like, why are you doing this? Like, if you're doing it to make something that you enjoy in the moment, and then for sure, like, by all means, do whatever brings you joy. But that wasn't fulfilling to me. I really wanted to be an artist. I wanted my words to survive and not be silenced and turned into something else so that someone could make money off it. It just ruined it for me I was like I'm going back to school fuck this (laughs) I was like I don't think I can do this every day the pressure of writing something I don't love and knowing that I actually don't have a handle on what it is the corporate people are gonna love because I don't love it so how am I supposed to know so I think that's a great segue to the most recent news of you signing with Ruby Abara's Bolo Music Group. Congratulations. Thank you. All of you made the announcement at Undiscovered this year, mm-hmm. which so grateful and humble that mm. you guys chose our event <laughs> to make this announcement. But because you've been in this industry for so long in different facets, working with different kinds of people, What is the difference between being an independent artist, Mm. 
versus signing with an indie music record label. Yeah. The difference here is that it's an artist collective. The people who started this label, Ruby, Ibarra, and Lassie, or Angelo, they're artists. They're creatives. They understand what an artist needs. They know what it's like to be invested truly in that creative vision that you have for your work. And they're deeply rooted in community and their why. Like when I think about Ruby and in the time I've known her and when people ask me like, oh, what's Ruby like? Or well, they want to know more about who she is off the stage. One of the first things I say is I've never met someone so deeply connected to her purpose all the time. Like she is like that all the time, at least from my experience. She can be silly too. You know, she'll prank me. Like what? maybe not like directly, but like I fall for things. I'm super gullible. Like when we were announcing Bolo, she had put into our Slack group that Jada Pinkett Smith just announced a label called Bolo and they changed all the headlines and the newspaper clippings that I was the only one who was like, holy shit, what are we going to do? <laughs> so she can be kind of silly like that, but they're very connected, both her and Angelo, in this vision that they have, both for the community, but for like the national API community and this bridge between Filipino Americans and Filipinos in the Philippines. But as a musician, I think it wasn't really a question for me. I knew that whatever terms they put in front of me were going to serve me. That Ruby was never going to ask me to do something that she wouldn't do herself. I just have a certain trust, I think, in them and in what they're doing that for me, it can only go up because we're going up together. We all have a dog in the race and we just decided to link up. <laughs> like no more siloed independent musicians. We are now working together. And yeah, it's really cool to be able to, to have that. I think after so long of having to advocate for myself alone. And it could be also like a girl thing in the sense that I always wanted to be in a band. I always wanted to be a boy. And I know that I was always telling my mom this growing up. I was like, man, it must be so cool to be a guy because like I can just go anywhere I want and I can go like play in bands with my bros or like whatever. And I know there's female bands out there, but I don't think it's the norm, right? There's a whole lot more men in the music industry than there are women. And so it's been a bit isolating at times. There is that kind of singling out that happens if you're a solo artist, but also as a woman. And so it's just such a great opportunity to like really be a part of a collective. And we were doing the research earlier and there's very little women of color mm. that own their own record label and start their own record label. So yeah, like props Ruby. Yeah. Props to Ruby. And I'm so proud that she's done this and, mm. you know, taking this giant leap <laughs> and risk to do this. Yeah. And to really give folks like yourself a platform to share their stories and share their art mm. in a way that I think is more equitable and honorable yeah. than other record labels. Yeah. So what was that process like? When did you first meet her and start talking <laughs> about this idea to be part of this collective? 
I want to say that her and Angelo hit me up in the summer and asked me to go meet for a coffee, which is like very cryptic. <laughs> I was like, cool. Like we're not meeting for a specific project, like to record something. We're just chatting I'm like, oh, this is just like artists coming to chat. Like, great. That's fun. So I go and do that and we're hanging out for a couple hours just talking about how music's been going. And then I'm kind of like, okay, so why did you drive like 45 minutes to meet me? <laughs> like what's happening? Is everything okay? <laughs> and they told me about this idea for Bolo. I think one of the first questions that came to mind for all of us as we were talking about this was like, why doesn't it already exist? Like when you think about the prominence the size of the Filipino American community in California, especially, but all over the States. Why hasn't, why isn't this already more of a thing? Like a, a home base for cultivating Filipino American music and what that could sound like or what that could be to really dream big and ask ourselves why that doesn't really exist already. And what can we do to make that exist? There was a long kind of courting period between all of us in just building the excitement and passion around this concept and really being invested in it. I think all of the other artists that, you know, Ian, Vince, I'm sure it was probably the same for them, like just over time getting really hyped about what it could be and like how we can contribute to this vision happening. And then just them being like, we want you to be an artist on the roster. At first I was like, what can I do? Send emails? <laughs> like grant writing? I was like, I know some people who do this and this. Like, how can I help? And they were like, we want you to like sing on it. <laughs> You're like, uh, can I be your intern? <laughs> get you coffee, Ruby? <laughs> you know? So it was very much like being rooted in the vision yes. first. And then being like, oh wait, I get to do the thing I love most. Yes. In this? Then yeah, like 100%. Amazing. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it's kind of surreal because it happened so fast too. Like we were just talking about it and then they're like, we're announcing it next month. And then we're having loads of shows lined up and press interviews and all the things. So I didn't realize how much was going to happen before the end of the year. It just exploded in a good way. And that's amazing. And I think that's the magic that happens when you manifest something with your intentions and your why and your purpose tied to that, right? Mm. And community. Yeah. And I've been saying this is the whole reason why we started this podcast was we need more platforms and just spaces for us by us. Yeah. Like Cultivate Labs, like Belay Creative, mm -hmm. you know, like Hopwell Gardens. And for Ruby to do something and see this foresight, I think is so powerful. I think we're entering an age of renaissance for Filipino Americans. Mm. And this is just one more thing for us to be like, yes. Yeah. We're doing it. 100%. And I'm just thinking about the power of diasporic communities in that regard. There's been more discourse around what it means to be Filipino American lately in conversation with folks all over the world, but like in the Philippines. And I've seen some tensions there, like on social media. It's painful to see because there's a lot more arguing and bickering and othering happening. I think that's something that you'll see happen in diasporic communities as well, because like how Filipino do you feel? Like Who has the say and the authority for what it means to be authentically Filipino? And I think we naturally will want to look to the Philippines, but I think it's 
important to remember how your experiences as both a Filipino but an American, truly not just a Filipino in America, but being Filipino and American is so important to how we think about our life stories and how we want to represent that in art and the culture that we've created here. It has its roots, but it is also its own thing and that's okay. It doesn't have to match up to some preconceived notion of authenticity. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, we had this conversation on this exact couch with Serena Bolden. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, who's half Filipino, half black. Mm. And she gets those opinions thrown at her all the time. Oh, Are yeah. you really Filipino enough? Because I you're half that. and you weren't born in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And I even get that. And I'm 100% Filipino, you know? <laughs> yeah. I know. I actually, I think about this all the time. And this is something I talk to my therapist about, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know that the book Borderlands by Gloria? I heard about it. Right? I haven't read it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's about like an area between Mexico and America. But it's, a, it's about the experience of being not American enough, but also not Mexican enough. It's about being in between cultures and not feeling like you are 100% either. And I think as both like a mixed race person, but also like a child of the diaspora, I share that experience with a lot of my friends who come from immigrant families as well, who might be 100%, but share that exact same feeling as I do of not 100% belonging here nor there or to a particular group. So I think recognizing and this is something I think I've been working on my entire life because of I'm biracial is that I've always felt like I'm nowhere and everywhere all at once I should be feeling belonging in all these spaces but I actually feel like I'm in another in-between state and kind of always having to create a space of belonging for myself I think also being half white is interesting because I'm very aware all the time of how much space I take up. I don't want to take up too much space. I see in contrast in my own family, navigating the world with my mom and my father, going out to dinners, whatever it was, how differently they were treated. And I have a lot of painful memories and stories around that. And being the only light-skinned child of theirs too, of all my siblings, so I'm very much aware of having both like, and this is where my sociology <laughs> degree comes out, but like being both oppressor and oppressed in a lot of ways, seeing both elements of that at play all the time. And as a human, also wanting to know where I fit in, where I belong. So much of my art and my journey of knowing who I am and what navigating life has been like how do I create a space for myself and to feel belonging and I think everyone's actually going through that <laughs> like you know whether it's because you're mixed race or you're a child of the diaspora we create spaces to feel belonging and to express our identities that may not fit somewhere else and those are actually spaces for us to collaborate and celebrate and so when I started making music and I did the coffee music video and I was really exploring Filipino heritage in the diaspora, specifically the Bay Area, I brought in all these girls who were like, some of them were uh, mixed Filipina, some of them were full Filipina, but like didn't have 
a very kind of strong lens of heritage. They were like me, like I'm Filipina, but like I haven't explored so much of the history or like I didn't have these things. No one had them really kind of handed to us. We have to look for those things as Filipinos. I think we have to look for our history and look for the truth. But that was a space that for the first time for a lot of us was like, this is cool. Like we created a space where we could ask ourselves these questions and like, what does it mean to be Filipina? And like, what does this look like here? And just being able to celebrate it. Like a lot of us hadn't had that before. And so it was such an awesome experience. And that's kind of what started this. You know, I'm just thinking about that answer and how it's also kind of like a full circle moment. We love a full circle moment here on Cultural Cultivators. But it brings me back to this idea that just like joyful evolution, it's a daily choice, mm. right? Do we connect back to our roots? How much do we want to learn about our heritage, our culture, but also make that uniquely ours mm. here, especially in America, where oftentimes if you're any kind of person of color or have an immigrant family, you are not American enough. Mm. Anyone from European descent is American enough. Mm. So I love this idea that it's a choice. And because we choose to center this in our why, we are Filipino enough. And if yes. we choose to bring our culture up with us, mm -hmm. you know, for the culture, mm -hmm. then we are Filipino enough. And just like Serena Bolden said in her interview, like she's choosing that every day by playing for the Philippines. Yeah. And you're choosing that as well for being part of something like Bolo Music Group. Mm. How Filipino is that? Like Bolo, <laughs> come on, y'all. <laughs> for real. Yeah. If someone asks you, like, what does it mean to you to be Filipino? I think everyone kind of has a different answer. And I think that's totally fair. And for me, it always comes back to a story of resilience and joy. The two are really combined in my experience and my view of my Filipino upbringing, my relatives, my mother, my sibling, her immigration story, and the history that I know. There's always more to learn, I think, being born here. But joy and resilience do go hand in hand in the Filipino culture. And so I think the way I feel most Filipino is in knowing that I am so resilient, that I'm so strong. Um, oh my God, I almost want to cry talking about this. No. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> Let the makeup stream. It's more dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I see so much of my mother in myself and Maybe at another time in my life, I would have been like, oh, hell no. But <laughs> I'm so proud of it because she is damn strong and so resilient and she's funny. And not everyone might get the joke, especially my American friends, but I have learned to really appreciate humor and appreciate having a good time when not everything is going good. You know, that's to me part of Filipino culture and ways that I think I keep Filipino culture alive in my life. Centering that joy. Yeah. Finding that joy, choosing that joy. Joyful evolution, y'all. 2024. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of 2024, mm. what are you most excited about for this new year being signed with Bolo Music Group and, you know, having uh, released a new EP in the last 
couple of months. Yeah, I, I'm mostly excited about the project that I am going to be working on with Bolo. So part of being on that label is working directly with Ruby and Angelo on an EP. And it's exciting because I'm still leading creative direction and it's still my vision. But whether I was on Bolo or not, these are two people I would have wanted to work with and have worked with already on Ruby's new album that hasn't come out yet. But Ruby is a lyricist and her flow and ability to just say something everyone's feeling, I think is going to really be impactful in my evolution as an artist. You know, I'm always just want to work on my craft and like, I want to be a better writer and I want to just find a new ways of saying things. And so I think kind of having a rapper's flow and not just any rappers, but like Ruby's voice be a part of that process and really inform how I navigate certain ideas. And Angelo is a producer and a multi-instrumentalist who makes me so comfortable, who really creates a space for me as a person to just process what's going on. I'm just excited for that because what we've already done together I loved and now we get to do like a bunch more <laughs> you know so that's what I'm most excited about and who knows what the year will bring mm-hmm. eh? <laughs> who knows only the universe um okay last question and this is how to be music because we spoke a lot about music but it can be what are you geeking over right now okay so I'm watching squid game <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The original Korean drama or the, the reality, reality show? show? Me too. It's so good. It is so good. Yeah, it's I mean, fun. It's really fun. I'm a little annoyed how they've spaced out the episodes because I need to binge it all. Same. I was like, so I'm down to the last three, I think. Yeah. And it comes out December what? I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. know. I'm annoyed. I need to know. So I love Squid Games right now. And then. Wait, wait. Who are you rooting for? <sighs> Not my. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did not like what she did. Okay. That was not cute. It really piranha vibes right yes. there. But I don't know. I, I feel like my favorite people aren't there anymore. Mm. But I'm just curious like how it's going to go down. Yes. Maybe the guy with the really pretty hair. Okay. Because <laughs> he feels nice. Yeah. Good energy. I just want someone who like kind of stood by their values for the most part mm. to win. My was brutal, dude. <laughs> and then what else? The lead singer of the Pogues passed away. It's like a Irish band that was really huge. And I watched his documentary last night called Crock of Gold. And this is like the second like mega star of Ireland after Sinead O'Connor to really pass away this year. And so I kind of like feel that devastation as well. And so that documentary has just been kind of mind blowing. Talking about a lot of what we talked about you know, kind of exploitive managers Mm. or like whatever the case may be, but also just like music that reflected the times. He talks a lot about English occupation, talks a lot about the great hunger or like the famine, which was not famine, right? It was the English exporting their food until they had none left for themselves and then half the population died. You don't have to include that. (laughs) I don't need haters in the UK. I love London. I really do. We actually have some listeners in the UK. Shout out I, to our international listeners. I love I love English music. I really do. But just saying, just saying. Well, that's because I don't know if you said this yet, but you're half 
Irish. I'm half Irish. Yeah. It's a culture that I never had the chance to really identify with growing up because our closest ancestor to Ireland is literally during the famine, during the great hunger and coming to the States. And that's my dad's side. His mother, Gloria, was actually half Filipina. No Yeah, it's way. just usually easier for me to say I'm half Irish, half Filipino. But the truth is that there were like Filipinos on both sides. Wow. And that was the culture that I feel I really got to know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was an adult and going to Ireland that I could really see a lot of cultural influence that has passed through the generations and made its way to my dad and his brothers. And they got an Irish last name and my dad looked very Irish. Let's just be real. Like you see some photos like ah, the Irish head on him. (laughs) He's real Irish. But I feel very invested in getting to know the cultures and places that created me. And just, you know, realizing that it's kind of a funny thing. Like so my husband's Irish and It's like always kind of a running joke that Americans like to say. They're like a quarter this and a quarter that and a quarter this and a quarter that. And he's like, that's way more than 100 percent. And (laughs) like, you're not really Irish if you're like not like an Irish citizen, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Or like you had an Irish father or mother or grandparent. And I think there's kind of that going on over there. And I try not to let it get me down because I do have a sense of pride from coming from two different cultures that are both extremely resilient both very joyful, who have a history of like the most brutal colonialism and have really fought their way out. And maybe that's the American in me speaking because I'm like, "Mm, get it, like fight for it, fight for your freedom. But I have created an identity where like that's a pride I have. I'd never been to Ireland until I was in college, but I don't really have any living family there. (laughs) But I love it. I love that culture. And you know what? I hope I get to live there again one day. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming into the studio with all these full circle moments. I feel like we a year ago, more than a year ago, we had your first Balai Creative Artist interview in our streaming hub over there. Yeah. And now we're sitting on the couch with our end of our first season for our podcast. So thank you so much, Wida. Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. This is great. We love you. Love you. There were so many jewels from this week's episode with Wida. I think one of the key takeaways for me is the importance of honing one's discernment as an artist. You know, in the early stages of any artistic journey, the emphasis is often placed on refining our craft, self-marketing, and propelling ourselves to the next level of our careers. Yet, as we navigate the complexities of success, we're never really given clear guidance on identifying trustworthy allies. So my chats and conversation with Wida today, I think, underscored a simple truth. The development of our internal discernment is just as important as perfecting our artistic crafts. And taking the time to nurture our intuition really helps distinguish the people with authentic intentions from those who may not have our best intentions at heart. So think of discernment like your own personal shield, swooping in to protect you from energy vampires and surprise legal hurdles. It's not just a shield. 
Discernment can also be a trusty compass, guiding you towards magical opportunities and authentic connections. Just like how I met Wida. See, we actually met because I casted the same actor in my short film as the one that played in one of her music videos. And so we randomly met in CamFest, an Asian American film festival in San Francisco in 2022. There, I invited her to the premiere of my film, Love and Corona. And at the premiere, I encouraged Wida to apply to Belay Creative's Creative Growth Artist Residency Program, which then led her to perform as part of our KQED show, headlined by the one and only Ruby Ibarra. The rest, as I like to say, is her story. So you see, trusting your intuition and sharpening your discernment isn't just a tool in your toolkit. It's also a secret superpower for artists navigating this corporate maze and forging genuine connections within their own community. And lastly, another lesson I walked away with can be summed up in a quote by Prince given to the Rolling Stone in 1996. If you don't own your masters, the masters will own you. Which basically means... When creating your art, take the time to copyright everything you create and be very careful signing anything that gives away your own creative freedom and creative control of your work. It also helps to have a good lawyer in your Rolodex to look over contracts, agreements, and MOUs as an artist. Take it from Prince. Own your masters. Wida's Come Rain, Come Shine EP is available on all streaming platforms. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Saliver. Stay in touch on our new Instagram page at cultural.cultivators, cultivators with a K. Or you can find me at Kindred Kapwa. This podcast is co-produced by John Reyes, Kindred Kapwa, and Balai Creative, and is a product of Cultivate Labs. It's a last chance before checkout. Let your heart out on your sleeve. Let's lose all this question. Don't need heaven. Sing, we're alive and we'll drive a while more. Any fool would be scared, but the truth, I don't care if it's the end of the world as we know. Oh
of you